Hi, I'm Lindsay Mandugi from Mandugi Soulmate. So you're listening to Robert Miller. And you know what? Follow your dreams because uh, live your dreams and don't dream your life. So if you're listening to this great podcast, then you live your life and you'll live your dreams. So follow your dreams. Here with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 191 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Tony Carey, a man who personifies rock and roll. He plays the keyboards, he sings, he composes, and most impressively, he still has hair down to his shoulders. Sorry, ladies, he's not single. (laughs) No, it's sorry, ladies, he's married. That's what they had on the Lennon, right? Yeah. All right. He is a veteran rocker, starting with the band Rainbow in the 1970s that was formed by Richie Blackmore of Deep Purple. Through today as a member of Mandoki Soulmates, the European-based supergroup. And along the way, he's worked with musical icons like Joe Cocker, Ian Anderson, John Mayle, and Eric Burden. And Tony has recently lent his considerable talents to two new songs of mine that he plays on and which will be released in a few months' time. And in this episode, we're going to do a special segment that I haven't done with anybody else. I'm not going to tell you anything about it until we do it. It'll be in the second half of this episode. And we're also going to do a song fest, which I love to do with all my musical guests. I've asked Tony to pick out a few songs that he loves that he's been on, and we're going to play them and we're going to talk about them. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And my featured song in this episode, which you're hearing underneath this introduction, and you'll hear it at the end, and I always feature a song of mine in each episode, and I try to make it relevant somehow. And in this instance, the song is called Bip Bop. It's from my solo album that was recorded during the pandemic called Summer of Love 2020. Why did I choose this song? Well, Tony is a great keyboard player, and the keys on Bip Bop are just great as well. So it really fits. Tony Carey, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Hi, that was pretty well done, that intro. Did I get everything in? Covered a lot of bases. Uh, Summer of Love is great. I mean, I was around for the first one. (laughs) I was, I was in in California in 1967. I hitchhiked up to Haight-Ashbury. I kind of got the vibe, Janice and the Dead and, you know, the whole... Jepson Airplane and all that. I kind of picked up on that as a wandering teenager. Did you get to play with anybody there? No, I was too young. Actually, too young. I was 14. I was 14. But yeah. I, did play, I did play at my high school prom, and uh, my band was so good. Uh, it was a band with Neil Steubenhaus, who uh, were both happened to be high school kids at the same age. Uh, Neil then went to play for, oh, who did he play for? Everybody. He's just, I think he, he's, in fact, he's the head of the musicians union in LA, but he went to Berkeley and then he played for Barbara Streisand. I think he played for Sinatra. He played for everybody. He's done a million sessions. And we were so good. How good were you? 
we were so good that our competition was the young rascals <laughs> and, and we got the, the gig. So it was a big moment for me because I was kind of retiring and, and always into the music and never not a social butterfly. And all these graduating senior cheerleaders uh, were kind of, it was kind of a jaw drop for them that I was actually singing at the senior prom. I got to tell you, one of my regrets, and it's, you know, it's nothing I could have done about anything about, was that I didn't get out to Haight-Ashbury during that summer of love. Yeah. But I did get out there the next year. But, you know, by then, and I was also too young to be part of the scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 68, it was already starting to go to hell. And uh, in the early 70s, it was all, I was very druggy and very dangerous. And, you know, but it started, but it started off nice. Owsley was there making acid for the dead. You couldn't go to any concert. Don't drink the orange juice because you're going to trip. You know, <laughs> right. that whole that whole thing. It's kind of like at Woodstock when they made the announcement. You know, don't don't take the brown ass. Don't take the brown, brown acid. Stay off the towers. <laughs> I got a Woodstock story really quick. I almost made Woodstock. I was 15. Uh, it was the summer. I turned 16 in in October. It was the summer of 69, as it were. I was working as a counselor, camp counselor, to uh, kids, just as a summer job. We heard all this about, and I was living in Connecticut. Uh, we had moved to Connecticut. And Woodstock was like three hours hitchhike away. It was raining, and it was muddy. And I got my buddy, I said, hey, we gotta, we gotta catch this. But 15's too young, and, and I didn't mind hitchhiking, but we got a couple, oh, maybe 50 miles out of town, and we gave up, because uh -huh. the radio was, blasting this don't go don't go it's yeah. too cold don't go it's dangerous and all this just to, because they saw what was happening and they were trying to get as many hippies to stay home as they could well listen i had a woodstock story too because i was working in that area that summer i was playing yeah. in the show band at one of the hotels in the area the and i actually in the Catskills, I actually drove out to the place where they were setting up for the concert the week before, and it was beautiful. The weather was great. They were putting up the stage, yeah. and I had a back road that I got there on. So, it, And then when the concert took place, you know, it was supposed to be three different days, and they sold tickets, and you were supposed to, you know, give the ticket in and all of that. Little did anybody know that the tickets went out the window, right? Yeah. They were going through yeah. the night. So I finished my gig on Saturday night with the show band and then we waited until the morning and we drove there via the back roads and this was sunday so it had already been going on for a day or so and we were able to get right up to the concert and i got there just as joe cocker was going on the stage oh hey so you saw you saw uh, with a little help from my friends that was the most memorable experience of mine at woodstock because i i could only stay half the day because i had to go back to the gig but, you know, I've told this story before. That experience of seeing him play that song was a mind-blowing experience for me because it showed me that you could take a song and redo it and make it your own. And he did. He did just that. Plus, uh, uh, you know, we talked before we did this and, and all the songs I've given you were huge keyboard influences. 
right. on me. And on that one, I don't, I don't remember who played the Hammond, but it was just a fabulous, iconic Hammond live. So that and Greg Raleigh was Santana. like game changers for me they're just terrific yeah it was something else for sure yeah. okay so so let's move on a little bit further tell us about rainbow that was your first big gig and how'd you meet richie blackmore and how'd you get involved in that well we had i had a record deal i was uh, 18 and i left high school at 17 and the, i mean i didn't even come i didn't even stay for graduation well I, was, I had a guitar player and we stuck our thumbs out and we went up to new hampshire where we'd found a singer and, you know, we, hey, we're lucky. It happens to me a lot. I was, uh, we're talented for sure, but lucky. It's just a lot of luck in this. Always helps to be lucky. You know, really. <laughs> uh, there's tons of talent out there. You know that. But, yeah. but people aren't in the right place at the right time, and then the universe misses them. We got a record deal with a ABC Dunhill Records, and I was then 19. And they sent us out to Hollywood. And I lived for seven months in the Chateau Marmont Hotel. Now that's really rock and roll. And we had a bungalow, uh, they have bungalows in the back. And the producer they gave us was Gary Katz, who produced Steely Dan. And he was known for meticulously, over meticulously producing. He, he wouldn't hire session players, he'd hire session bands. He'd have like five of the top A-list first call guys come in and play a Steely Dan track. Uh -huh. The next day, he'd have five completely new guys. I mean, all <laughs> top guys, all getting triple scale, union scale. That's a if, if you if, if you're unfamiliar with the terminology, that means they were getting paid a lot, get a lot of money, a lot of money, and a lot of time, and it's all important. And everybody thought they were going to be on a Steely Dan record, and never figured it out until it came out who actually was on it. <laughs> so, lo real long story short, we spent I think eleven months in the studio he didn't we didn't get anything on tape we had uh david page who later was in toto we had skunk baxter we had lee sklar these are all big names kids yeah. and uh, uh the the first thing gary katz did this is the wrong producer for us first thing gary katz did was fire the bass player and drummer okay and then he wouldn't let the two guitar players play on the album but you know they were both we're, we're kind of a crosby stills and nash type thing so I got to play a little, the guitar players didn't, a bummer. I mean- the, But you got nothing so, on tape? No, nah, not that I'm aware of, no. <laughs> so we're at SIR, which is also pretty rock and roll kids, there's Studio Instrument Rentals in Los Angeles, where all the bands hire rehearsal space. So we're in SIR and Jeff Picaro was playing drums, rest in peace. And his brother, Mike was playing bass, that were later from Toto, rest in peace. And I was playing Hammond and Richie was two studios down looking for a keyboard player because he had Ronnie Dio, he had Cozy Powell and he had Jimmy Bain and he didn't have a keyboard player. I do tend to turn it up when I play. <laughs> and they heard me from two studios down and he sent somebody over and said, you know, you want to audition for Richie Blackmore's Rainbow? 
And I said, well, I got a band. And then I thought about it. I said, but we've been sitting here for a year. Nothing's on tape. I fired the drum. What's this shit? So I said, well, yeah. Later that day, I called my old man. And uh, he was in Fresno, California. And I called him up. I said, Dad, I'm going to be a rock, a rock and roll star. He said, I thought you already were. <laughs> I said, no, a real one. I'm going to make money this time. A real one, you know, and because he, he thought when we got the record deal, you know, everything was gold. Right. It wasn't. So it was, that was funny. I said, no, a real one. Watch my smoke. And uh, it's before I'd met any of them. And I went down the next morning and, you know, played something for him. And then I was in. Okay. I was the youngest by seven years. Oh, wow. So how yeah. long was Rainbow around? I played 75, 76, 77. Okay. And uh, that's two studio albums and the, the infamous on stage. And then now it, it, lately there are about six uh, live albums from our 76 world tour. You mean like bootleg kind of things? Huh? No, they're official releases. And this oh, was just okay. with like with the artwork and everything, not bootleg. There's a bootleg, by the way, of every show we ever played. Like even if it's somebody with a little cassette recorder, awful bootleg. <laughs> Every single show we ever played, I have found on a bootleg. There used to be a lot more bootlegs. You don't hear about bootlegs anymore, okay? Right, right. I don't know why. Some of them were actually pretty good. All of them are good. I love bootlegs. Allman Brothers shows, you know. No, but you're right. Some of them were recorded on these little cassette players and stuff like that. And it sounds like, you know, somebody had a glass up a, against a wall yeah, or something. Wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you get, but you get the vibe, you know, that's that. that that's, that's yeah, you did get the vibe. That's true. Figure out what's going on. All right. So when you had Rainbow, you have Richie Blackmore in, in the band and all of that. Were you playing all the big venues? Did you play like no. the Fillmore East and places like that? Oh, we didn't play much in America at all. We, we were big in Europe, uh, Australia, and Japan. That's why okay. England, continental Europe, Australia, and Japan. Did you play the Budokan? Oh, yeah, three times. Three nights in a row, or maybe it was two nights in a row, but I think it was that would be four shows because the Budokan had uh, matinee shows. I always thought that looked like a very cool place to play. 15,000 people that didn't speak the language <laughs> and, and very, very polite as the Japanese are and uh, kind of enthusiastic. But I mean, the, the, the good audience, the best audiences were in England and in Australia. Australia is like, if you haven't been there, it's a lot like you imagine the Wild West would be. You know, they're exuberant. And England was like a home, a home game for, for, for Richie. They, they just love him there. So. Okay, pretty cool. Our opening act in Australia was ACDC. On their first national tour, this 1976. And they opened for us. And they were fabulous. And I used to come out and watch them. And it's when Bon Scott was still a singer. And they were Fantastic. And I thought this band might be going places. Yeah, well, you picked that right. 
200 million records later, <laughs> they went places. They went places. All right. I want you to give me like little vignettes on a couple of the guys that you've worked with. Let's yeah. start with Joe Cocker. Lovely, lovely, lovely guy. And we had a history before I worked with him. He had, when I lived in uh, Hollywood and he was on the road, I had a key to his rented house where there was a piano that I could go practice on. And so we, we had a history and I didn't know him personally, but I got the key. Joe okayed this, a buddy of his had the key and he says, hey, can this guy from, you know, this guy play your piece? And Joe says, sure, that's what a good guy he is. And, you know, I could have ripped him off in his mental house, whatever. So I met him. Uh, as with all of the big productions I did in Europe, it was actually pretty coincidental that they were all on tour in Europe. A, B, wanted to make a record. C, wanted somebody that spoke English. Same with John Mayo. And Joe was going to do a film soundtrack, the title to the song, which I had written with another guy. And he happened to be there. And the label called and said, would you produce Joe Cocker? I said, yeah, fuck yeah. And uh, well, I met him in a hotel bar. There's a great Joe Cocker story. I don't know how much time we have. Met him in a hotel bar. He was lovely. And he came out of the studio in Munich. So in those days, he drank a lot of beer. It wasn't the like bottle of whiskey disaster, but it was, he calmed down to the point where he was drinking beer, German beer. And then we did a session. It was all like 12 hour session. And his vocal at the end of that session, it was okay. But it sounded like Joe Cocker on tour, like rough. And he was a little bit, maybe two sheets to the wind. So the band piled into the tour bus. And I wasn't finished with overdubs. I wanted them to, to play more. The band piled into the bus with Joe, drove 45 minutes to Munich to the hotel, put Joe in bed. Then the whole band snuck back to the studio. Now it's midnight and we worked and uh, we needed background singers. We needed a new Hammond, a new piano needed to be played again. And I had it. So that's fantastic. And Joe slept through all of that and never knew it. And uh, <laughs> then I had the, and, the coolest thing was that the, his manager was Mike Lang, who promoted Woodstock. And he was there, and, and I was more impressed with Michael Lang than I was with Joe Cocker. <laughs> this guy's like a real legend. And uh, 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 he was in on it. And I told him at the end of the session, I don't know if I'll be able to use this vocal. He said, oh, man, that's a problem. But as it turned out, uh, I then waited for them, their tour to be over, which was not too long after that. And sent with you, UPS probably, I sent a 24 track tape to Santa Barbara where he lived. And he went in the studio there, sang the vocal, it came back perfect. There you go. All right, let's pick one more guy. How about Eric Burden from The Animals? What'd you do with him? <laughs> wild, wild thing. I, I had a studio, I had my first home studio and I, I finally got wise to the fact that if a label is going to give me a quarter of a million German marks in this case to make a record or more, which was budgets, you remember budgets, they don't yeah. exist anymore. If they were going to pay me all that money, why should I pay it to a third party with a studio? So I took the advance and we bought all the equipment we needed. I rented a four room apartment down on the, on the lake in, in Tootsie, where actually where Leslie lives, Mendoki lives. I was living there too. And 
the control room was in the kitchen and the Hammond, the Leslie was in the bedroom and the piano was in the living room and, and there was mics everywhere. And it was gigantic. And Eric, same thing. He was on tour and the, we had the same label. And uh, the label's idea was let's have him do a duet with Uncle T being me. And another uh, great lady, great German singer on the Heigas, she was on it too. So Eric stumbled up, the fell up the stairs, if you can imagine that, uh, to my studio. And we spent a very long day and got a song called No Man's Land. He was my brother, born the day I left. He took the mother load, I took the rest. She was a fighter. which he nailed. He was so much fun. And then we, we also did five or six German TV shows like to pr promote it. And Eric was lovely. He was just a great guy. And he, he'd been working in Germany a lot. He, he, he played a lot with a guy called Udo Lindenberg, who's like an arena level artist. And Eric would be a special guest. So he was familiar with Germany. There's, uh, you know, I could, I, I know I tend to run on. There's one scene they wanted, they wanted to make a video. The, the song is called No Man's Land and it's about the American Civil War. And I mentioned the blue and the gray. So they dressed Eric up in a Confederate uniform and me up in, 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 a, in, a, in a Union Yankee uniform and gave us like rubber swords, plastic swords, and, and wanted us to have this duel uh, on the lakeside. They had a camera crew of makeup people. And this was after a long, long session and we had to get the light because the sun was going down. And somewhere is a video of an extremely wasted Eric Burden and an even more wasted Uncle T <laughs> dueling in the setting sun. It, with, with your plastic swords, huh? Yeah, yeah, it was unbelievable. <laughs> and it, it, we, it was just a, 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 a great moment. And of course, somebody looked at the video and said, no. We can't use that one. Can't use that Too one. bad, too bad. Hey, everybody, this is your host, Robert Miller. The Shakespeare Concert is the new album by my band, Project Grand Slam. 15 of our greatest hits recorded live in the studio, one after another, concert style. No overdubs, no fixes, just as is. The album's been praised by so many famous musicians including Mark Farner of Grand Funk Railroad, Jim Peterick of the Ides of March, Joey D of Peppermint Twist fame, legendary guitarist Elliot Randall, and celebrated British composer Sarah Class. And the music reviewers have called it perfection, five stars, thrilling, and a masterpiece, among other accolades. You can stream the album on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming services. And it's also available the old-fashioned way for purchase as a digital download or CD from the pgsstore.com. I'll even autograph the CD for you. I want to thank you for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the show on whichever podcast platform you use.
And if you want the inside scoop on each new episode, just sign up for our weekly email on our website at followyourdreampodcast.com. All right, listen, let's go on to this special segment that you and I have talked about because Tony is a great keyboard player. And, you know, recently with another artist that I had on the uh, show here, Elliot Randall, who's a wonderful guitar player, we did a little segment where we put forward songs that where the guitar solo just made the song. So with Tony, I said to him, okay, let's do the same kind of thing, but let's do it with keyboards, okay? Let's each put together a short list of songs that were just made by the keyboard, either because of the solo or just the sound or whatever. So I'm going to go first just to set the tone here. But for me, I'm talking about Stevie Winwood doing Give Me Some Lovin'. Yes, unbelievable in the Spencer Davis group. I mean, that that little lick that he came up with is so iconic, right? It is. It's the first thing anybody learns. And to get the sound, you pull every drawbar. Hammond organ works with drawbars, kids, and they 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 operate tone generators. And you, you push them in or out to get different sounds. To, to get that sound, you just pull everyone all the way out. <laughs> so it's like Hammond for beginners. But you're right. I mean, he was, what, 15, 16 years 15, old when he did that? He was 15 when he did Give Me Some Love and then I'm a Man. Unbelievable. Yeah, and then they started traffic after that and blew my mind. Yeah. yeah. All right, give me your first one. Well, there's a few. Uh, if you notice, I'll preface this a little bit. If you notice, like Adele, for instance, gets a billion streams, it's great. If you notice the piano playing in it, Piano playing in pop and rock music has evolved to very, very simple. Like on the one, on the two, on the three, on the four, with nothing in between. That is the evolution. That's the way things go. It's changed. It's a lovely sound. It does great. But in the 60s and 70s, Elton John played so much. And I saw him live a couple of times in like 1970, 50 years ago. And, so, and Roy Bitton played so much and was so busy right now today you say hey shut the piano player up and just we just want one two three but this was very freestyle so that leading me to thunder road by uh, uh the e street band for Springsteen on the born to run album the screen door slams Mary's dress waves Like a vision she dances Across the porch as the radio plays Roy Orbison singing for the lonely Hey, that's me and I want you only 
Don't turn me home again, I just can't face myself alone again. Don't run back inside, darling, you know just what I'm Changed everything because for me, because of Roy Bitten's piano part. It also happens to be one of my top three favorite songs of all time, best song I've ever written. All right. My second song that I'm picking out, I, I knew I had a Rascal song on the list, and it was Felix's solo, Felix Cavalieri's solo in Good Lovin'. You know, it was one of those iconic solos that, you know, in the 60s, it just it just made the song. Sure. I mean, it was fabulous. I wasn't that East Coast. My you know, you're you're coming from the East Coast. And when I was a kid, the things that blew my mind either came from England or Raymond Zarek, The Doors, Greg Raleigh from Santana. I was very, very West Coast. Well, they were great too. And there's no question about it. Sure, they're I'm just talking about what what impacted me. Yeah, you know, Felix was the man. I mean, uh, Felix and Eddie in that band. The, yeah. the Rascals were the shit. They were just great. <laughs> I know. All right, so give me your second song. Uh, well, I'd have to, there's a couple more, but one would have to be A Whiter Shade of Pale. my top five best favorite songs ever written. I was 14 when it came out. Uh, it remains the best Hammond organ recording ever made and the best Hammond organ part. Not just the, the, the iconic Bach thing that he plays, but the way he plays under the verses. Study that if you're into rock organ. It's just so simple and so perfect and it's so well recorded. And they probably did it in 20 minutes with three microphones. You know, because this is like the 60s in uh, in England and, and like people would go in and do an album in a day. And uh, that's probably what they did. And, you know, it, it, it was so advanced for its time. OK, oh, compared to everything else that was happening at that moment. Then you heard this beautiful, you know, Hammond and the song itself. Yeah. And Gary Brooker. I mean, what a singer. Yeah. As well. And the lyrics were 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 actually perfect because they were so obscure <laughs> and 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 trippy you could be i mean uh 16 vestal virgins leaving for the coast okay you didn't know what that meant come on <laughs> oh oh you did oh, okay <laughs> okay but yeah whiter shade whiter shade of pan yeah i agree with you all right i'm going to take my third one i'm going to do the last one here and then you you'll get your last one but i i you know i said to myself you play with richie blackmore at deep purple 
And of course, you know, their song Hush had that wonderful organ part in it. And uh, that one just knocked me out completely. You probably that, know more about that than I do. That, I tell you what, that would have, it was in, in contention for my third song. Uh-oh. For me, th this was in the 60s. For yeah. me, Deep Purple was John Lord. And I didn't care about the, I mean, never, I'm a keyboard guy, you know, I guess guitar players might have cared. I didn't, I thought it was like, a, he does that on Hush, amazing. Yeah. Blew my mind. Steppenwolf, the guy from Steppenwolf did the same type of thing. He was fabulous. But John Lord, for me, was Deep Purple. Later, the dynamic changed. And it was a lot more about Richie. And uh, uh, Made in Japan album came out, the live thing. They improvised. It was My Bitches Brew, you know. Yeah. Which is an album by Miles Davis, kids. Live. Uh, fairly live in the studio. I got to interrupt you. I, I tell this story a couple of times that, again, another concert I went to see at the Film Maurice, it was Miles opening for The Who, okay? Which was, you just don't see combinations like that anymore. And it was marvelous because I was there for, really, for Miles, but it was two different audiences and it was, and each audience loved the guys from the other band. You know, it just worked out perfectly. Well, it had to be early 70s, right? Or, yep. or even late 60s. Yep. It was the, during that whole Bitches Brew era oh, for Miles. You know, he was touring in the rock clubs for those things. Yes. And that's exactly when when he went rock. And then he did it in a silent way. They did the Bitches Brew and blew everybody's mind, including mine, and uh, gave us the realization, which like the Grateful Dead already had, but that you could play any kind of music you want without rehearsing. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, it was an excuse to jam. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard stories about how he uh, he walked into studios and just said, you play this, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, you play this. How was the who? <laughs> That's the question. They were great. They oh, were. Man. I always loved the who. Okay? Oh, man. I've told this story before as well. There was a, a guy named Murray the K. Sure. He was a famous disc jockey in the United States. He, he was known as the, the fifth Beatle at the time. And Murray the K used to do these shows in New York City where he put together a lineup that you wouldn't believe. Okay, I, I even remember that, yeah. One of the lineups that he, that he had, I went to see the show. The Rascals were on the, you know, the, had a couple of Motown groups as well. But the last two groups on the bill, the opening acts were The Who and The Cream. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's how it was listed. Yeah, The Cream, and, yeah. When the Who came out and they did their thing and they just and Townsend destroyed his guitar and you know Keith Moon destroyed the drums and everything, you know if you were a teenager at that time you would just gaga over that. 
Because who had the money to buy multiple sets of instruments? No, nobody, including them, by the way. They were in debt for the first 10 years. They, I'm sure they, they were. They, they were. I, I, I know this. I knew John Entwistle before he died. And, you know, they went out and, and trashed a, a completely legitimate, expensive guitar rig and drum rig every night. And they were in debt, like forever. <laughs> but it worked. It was a great trick. You bet. The godlike vocals of Roger Daltrey. Uh, this what set the who and the songwriting of course that was Pete, but the vocals, you know, see me, feel me, hear me, the whole Tommy stuff, all that stuff was just blew my mind. They're a wonderful, wonderful they band. Make them like that, almost. There are they, there are a couple out there, but all right, I'm going to give you one more keyboard song to mention here. Being California, the Doors played my high school or high school in the next town. They played up and down the West Coast before they were famous. And Uncle Ray Manzarek, like, with, he had a Farfisa, and, uh, and, and he, the way he played Fender Rose, and he played the bass with his left hand on yeah. a Fender Rose bass keyboard, which is about as big as a typewriter, and sat on top of his organ. That fascinated me. I, he's one of my top five keyboard players of all time, Raymond Zarek. And I steal a lot of stuff from him to this day. And uh, my first band, after I got my first organ, our, it, our repertoire was the first two Doors albums. And then we'd start <laughs> over after we played. So Light My Fire is just one of many... He was a great player back then, for yeah, sure. Fabulous. Just, just a great, great mind. And then I saw later. I saw. I doubt I'd never met him, but I, other than to, to, you know, stand in front of him and gawk. But later I saw him do some, some, some YouTube videos, uh, breaking down some of his writers on the storm. For instance, he's also a great guy. Terrific. All right, listen. We're going to be remiss if we don't get to the Songfest portion of our interview. Now, I'm going to name one song of yours that was a big single, and we're playing it right now. It's a fine, fine day. When my Uncle Sonny flew back into town, he said, I'll just go for a ride and have a look around. He took off his fedora, stuck his fingers in the crown, and he pulled out $20, and he laid that money down. And he called out to a taxi cab, take me down to Central Park. Keep that meter running to the $20 mark. And he kept his eyes turned forward and he sat up straight and tall. And no one even noticed him. No one cared at all. It's a fine, fine day for a reunion. It's a fine, fine day for coming home. So tell us a little bit about that one. I got signed by Geffen Records. That was the place to be. 
in the 80s. Uh, they signed, very unusual, they signed two acts, Planet P Project and Tony Carey. And they were both, of course, 100% me. And uh, I had huge fights, not huge fights, I just said no. This is when the trend began that a label really had an input to the lyrics and the music and this and that. They liked Planet P. There's a guy who I won't name, two guys, but who's legendary, A&R guy for Geffen Records at that time, hated the title A Fine, Fine Day. And I, being pretty well read, thought that was straight out of Steinbeck and it's gotta stay. And I said, I'm not changing that. After that, he hated, he also hated what was gonna be the second single, the first day of summer, I, the line was, on the first day of summer, no, the whole world knows your name, which to me reflected a John Cheever story, a short story, the girls in summer dresses. And long story, very long story short, they traded me to Irving Azoff at MCA Records like a baseball player. <laughs> so without, you know, I didn't have anything. What did they get in return? It. They get a draft choice or two? You know, you know, just like, just like a baseball player. Uh -huh. And I had made such an enemy of this, uh, I won't even, I won't say his name, but everybody knows who I mean. Uh, Writes his name twice on the album cover. Uh, I made such an enemy of that Fine Fine Day was number one in the rock charts, reached 22 with a bullet in the, in the Hot 100, then lost the bullet and, and disappeared. And I'm you know, maybe 90% positive that, that, that this guy was really, really powerful with radio. And I think he said, shit, you know, because they passed on it at Geffen. And I think he said, shit, and got me like shit can't. I really do. Hey, you never but know. That's a story, huh? Okay. Well, listen, you mentioned the second song about the summer. Tell us about that one. Well, it's a story of my first band. It's just, it's not factual, but it's, it's a, it's a story. I, it was my song of the stories. And uh, we did a very silly video. Uh, MTV had just come for both the songs and for the Planet Peace song. And I was on wall to wall TV and I hated it actually, but they didn't have that many videos. And the ones that were in heavy rotation in 1982, three and four, they got played six times a day. So it, I was over there, I couldn't go into the supermarket. And I, I know people that are that famous, I don't wanna be one of them. And I, I hate it, just go down and buy milk for the baby and everybody's looking at you and come up, you know, that kind of thing. That was never my thing. But, but uh, first day of summer did quite well. It was top 30 and, or top 40, I think, and uh, it worked. There you go. It, except for the, the 
I hated the lyrics. It got me blacklisted. Well, listen, that happens to the best, okay? Oh, so yeah. Don't worry about that. All right, but before we end this, I want you to talk a little bit about the Mandoki Soulmates because I love that band. Uh, you are front and center in that band. And uh, tell us how you got there and what's happening with the band. I just got off the phone with Leslie. He's doing well. He says hi. Okay, first. great. Yeah, because we did the podcast together. Uh, Leslie's been is a the world's best organizer, and uh, he, he lives. He's down in Munich, and he was a, a pop star like a long time ago, like a teen idol. With like imagine a group of what in sync or something. He was like in, in a group like that. <laughs> I'm and having then, trouble know, with that image now that you know, I know what he looks like now. <laughs> you know, handpicked by somebody, you know, a cast really to be in yeah. this band. And they were very, very, very successful, and it wasn't anything for him. So he, he wanted to play jazz rock. So he put together this soulmates project, and the the list of people iconic people that have been in this band is longer than the list of people that haven't been. I mean, we had uh, yeah, Ian Anderson. Ian Anderson. Well, we, had, we had Jack Bruce. We had Greg Lake. We had David Clayton Thomas. We had a Spice Girl. I mean, we had Steve Lukather. We had, How did he uh, do it? How did he put this together? He's a very convincing fella. <laughs> he's, one of my, he's, he's one of my two or three best friends. I've known him forever. Uh -huh. he, he's one of the guys that, you know, he, he talk you into doing it. And then everybody, and the thing is, the vibe of the soulmates is so good that, that if somebody's coming for the first time and they don't know what they're getting into, they're immediately made comfortable. Everybody leaves their egos at the door. It's a collective. We're there to have fun. There's no rules. I mean, you know, you have to, to you read charts and you have to play the right chord when the, when the refrain comes, whatever. But other than that, it's 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 all improvisation. If so, we laugh a lot, it's funny, it's it's great. And that's Leslie's gift, actually, is to, to put something like that together and keep it together for like 30 years. Now I've been I've been there for 20, you know, off and on. But Chris Thompson from Manfred Man's Earth Man sang sang uh Davies on the Road again and, and all those those hits we had. Yeah, you guys did this concert last year in Budapest and um you just put it out recently, and I had Tony and Leslie on the podcast to talk about it and go through it. And I wasn't familiar with the Soulmates, I will admit that, but it was an incredible concert. The, the playing level is just unbelievable. The crowd was, I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 people in Budapest. It was just amazing. Yeah. And like you said, the list of people that have played with the Soulmates is awe-inspiring. It's longer than the list of people that haven't. <laughs> Oh, All right. Great. Well, we're doing, we're doing Budapest, by the way. See, you had, you didn't hear because it it's really a European thing, and and we planned to conquer America, but we're not the youngest anymore. You know, uh, Leslie's a little bit older than me, and we're both pushing seventy. Okay, on we go. But we're doing Budapest again in August, and one more right after that. Um, this is we, we do it on the Hungarian national holiday, and he's Hungarian, and he's like a folk hero there. So that's why. 35,000 people turn out. That's still pretty good no matter what. Hell yes. We have been talking and having a great time here with Tony Carey, Mr. Rock and Roll. I mean, yeah. the stories that you're able to tell are just unbelievable. I'm going to have Uncle, to edit this down Uncle a little Rock bit. And Uncle <laughs> Rock and Roll. And right. uh, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. I want to thank you for all your contributions to my stuff and everything that you've done over the years. My pleasure, Robert.
Thanks so much. And we're going to listen now again to that song, Bip Bop of Mine, that started the podcast underneath the introduction. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.